Hi, I'm Annie in America. And I'm Johanna in Austria, and you're listening to your favorite award-winning international podcast. We're back, and we're so sorry for the unplanned two-week absence. Yeah, I have been really struggling with migraine this spring, and the past few months since really late February have just been one or two days where I'm in bed in a dark room followed by one or two days where you have this sort of migraine hangover, which really, mm. I, I never really was a big enough drinker to get hangovers. I don't know that I ever had like a drinking hangover, but the migraine hangover, you just feel like hot garbage. You feel like you're dying. Like you feel like you're about to get plague. You know, it's awful. And then the next day, the migraine's back. So I'm back in a dark room. My Laundry pile is high enough to be a landslide risk. I mean, it's all clean. I just have to fold it and put it away. And I don't know, the dust monies might be planning some kind of uprising, but it's, it's fine. It's fine. I think also at that time, you were still recovering from the flu. And I think I could have maybe taken more edibles and, and like pushed through, but I think one of us has to be not incapacitated. I, I recognize, it would be yeah, <laughs> it's usually you, but I think that week I was like, I can't see, I can't yeah. talk. And you were like, I'm sleeping 18 hours a day. I hope I die. Yeah, true. It was, we were both so sick. So yeah. Uh, yeah. That was one week. And then the other week, my laptop suddenly gave up. Yeah. Well, it was a whole thing. Don't worry. My husband, who is the best, immediately wanted to buy me a new one because the one I have is rather old. It's like seven years, I think. It's his old gaming laptop and he gave it to me and I use it since then. You know, but I don't want a new laptop. I'm really committed already. I have nice stickers on it. You know how it is. <laughs> and so we sent it in to get it repaired and it's going to cost a fortune, but who cares? It's going to get repaired. And I have to thank my sister because she now gave me hers for now. Nice. But just in case, if something sounds weird to you, that might be it. I'm not working on my usual laptop and it's not my usual setup. Yeah, but thank you for your patience. I'm sorry we weren't here for two weeks. If you were in our social media like Facebook and, and stuff, you saw it. But for everybody who's not in there, we're really sorry you maybe have been waiting for us. Yeah. But we're back. We're back. And Annie has some fresh hell for us today. I do. Okay, this is exciting. Back in episodes 79 and 80, I discussed a possible serial killer in New England. And when I was researching the cases for those episodes, specifically the murder of Josie Langmaid in Pembroke, New Hampshire, back in 1875, I found an article about this case, which took place decades later. But then it kind of replaced, like at the time, Josie Langmaid was the worst thing that ever happened, you know. And then this happened and became the new worst thing. The crime that, of the century. Exactly. It, yeah. yeah, the worst crime New Hampshire had ever seen. So today we are going to talk about that case. Sometimes when I'm trying to research a case, I'll find out about another case and I just fall into such a rabbit hole and I can't focus on anything. I'm like a hummingbird. So I've started a list of those cases that I can just go back to. So I'm... Um, this is one of them, so I'm excited. All right, so primary sources include contemporary newspaper articles found using our newspaper.com subscription. Uh, thanks to our Patreons for funding that source information for us. We're, they're not sponsors or anything. We just, we use our Patreon money to be able to research with them lots of articles, especially a couple in the Boston Globe, one by Edwin J. Park and another with no attributed author. And it had a lengthy interview with a family member, which really helped to fill in a lot of details. Also, a current article from the Concord Monitor called, Have You Heard the Story About the Pembroke Family Killed in 1906? by Ray Duckler. And I will link to that in my sources. That is the article I found when I was researching the Langmaid murder, because it mentions that. And so it's also the primary source for the haunting linked to this horrific tragedy. All right, so today we're going to be talking about a familicide that ended with eight deaths, seven murders, and a suicide. 
Okay, we're going back to New Hampshire for the Langmaid, Lakeman, and Eyre families knew each other. Although this case is a generation or so after the really terrible murder of Josie Langmaid. So Wikipedia tells us that Merrimack County is, quote, a county in the United States state of New Hampshire. As of the 2020 census, the population was 153,808, making it the third most populous county in New Hampshire. Its county seat is Concord, the state capital. The county was organized in 1823 from parts of Hillsborough and Rockingham counties and is named for the Merrimack River, end quote. In 1910, the population of the county was around 53,000, and by 2020, it was about 153,000. The towns that we're going to be discussing today include Pembroke, Chichester, which is uh, pronounced differently than Chichester, which is in the UK, the town it was named after, Epsom, and the state capital of Concord, which are all in Merrimack County. So they're all they're all in they're all neighboring towns. Also in Merrimack County is Bear Brook State Park for those familiar with that case. It would take a day to walk there from Boston or about 7 hours on a bike according to Google Maps when you remove the highways. It's inland so you can't travel by canoe like the whole way. I feel like we got into canoe portage the last time we were in this neck of the woods, but Today, it's a little over an hour's drive from Boston by modern highway on, you know, in a car, but I'm trying to to give you a more authentic travel time experience. This story involves two families, Addie Lakeman, who would go on to marry Charles Ayer. So let's start with the Lakeman family. Addie Lakeman was the fifth of seven children and the second oldest daughter in a large and loving family born to Isaac Newton Lakeman, a farmer, and his wife, Laura Glidden Lakeman. Isaac and Laura live on a farm that sat atop a hill in Pembroke, the same town as the Langmaids, and yes, the families knew each other. Let's talk briefly about Addie's other siblings. She had an older sister, Mary, born in 1861. She married a local blacksmith and is the sister interviewed by the Globe that was able to provide so much information. In 1865, her eldest brother, Fayette Lakeman, was born. He was a blacksmith and a farmer. He had two children before his 35-year-old wife, Nellie, died of tuberculosis in 1902. Thankfully, he found love again and had children with his second wife. In 1868, her brother, George, was born. He would marry in Boston and live in Massachusetts, where he worked for the railroad. In 1871, her brother Albert, who was known as Bert Lakeman, was born. He was a carpenter and fought in the Spanish-American War. Bert didn't marry until his 50s, and it looks like until then he lived with his brother Lafayette or Fayette and his family. This is common here. When my mom was a child, various, various unmarried aunts and uncles lived with them. I don't know, I think things have changed here, probably recently, but I think this was pretty normal here. So then Addie was born in 1872, so she is 11 years younger than her oldest sister and five years older than her youngest sibling. So she's sort of in the middle bottom of this group of seven. Then her sister Vasta was born in 1875. Vasta Lakeman married a watchmaker and then filed for divorce, citing cheating. And it's the first time I found information on him. I thought the curse of writing said that he was a matchmaker, like the W looked like an M to me. And then later I kept seeing jeweler. So then I thought briefly, I was like, was he a con man? Like, did he pretend to be a matchmaker and then a jeweler? And I had this whole idea in my head of what might have happened. But then, (laughs) then I saw watchmaker on a different thing, like a census. And I was like, oh, okay, watchmaker not matchmaker. I'll post, I'll post, and you tell me what you see, if it's an M or a W. You're all going to say, that says, that says watch, Annie. It's fine. But yeah, he was a watchmaker. He worked for the Waltham Watch Company, and uh, I know that building well. Paul lived in Waltham when we first met. Um, I've spent a lot of time in that Boston suburb. Waltham is also known as Watch City, so it all makes sense. Yeah, I think watchmaker makes more sense. I think matchmakers were predominantly women. I could be totally wrong, but if Fiddle on the Roof taught me anything, then it was that. Yes, definitely. Or, uh, yeah, 
women. So I was super confused and I spent way too much time trying to figure out what it meant until I realized my folly. So anyway, next born was the youngest, James Henry Lakeman. He was born in 1877. He was known as Henry and he worked as a blacksmith. He died of tuberculosis in 1927. He was aged 50. I found his World War I draft card, which had him living in a sanatorium for his tuberculosis. So I think it's safe to say that he had been ill for quite a long time if he was in a sanatorium at least 10 years, probably, right? Or at least in and out. So yeah, they are a family with their own very real, very difficult uh, struggles, right? Just like every family. They've had plenty of loss. I just want to make it clear that this family isn't Nobody, nobody that we're talking about today is extremely wealthy or what's the word connected. Do you know what I mean? These are just simple people doing their best, right? Okay. So now the Eyre family was much smaller. Albert and Susan Eyre had two children. Charles Eyre was the oldest. He was born in 1863 and he had a sister, Mary, two years younger. And when she married, she married a a man named George Bailey in 1885. Her husband moved in with the Ayers to work the farm in Chichester, where Charles and Mary had grown up. Like her brother, Charles, she had five children who lived in the same home that he had grown up in and ran the farm with her parents. She had a work ethic that was lacking in her brother, Charles, and we'll get into that Plenty of that later. 20-year-old Addie Lakeman and 29-year-old Charles Eyre were married on May 24, 1893, in Concord, New Hampshire. According to Addie's sister, they got along really well, and he was, quote, a fine musician, a good singer, and excellent upon instruments. My sister Addie was a family favorite and a beautiful woman in appearance and disposition, end quote. So they're both beautiful, and they're young, and they're in love, and they're happy, and it's all good. It's a first marriage for both of them. They met about two years before they were married. He was born in Chichester, and she was born and raised in neighboring Pembroke. According to the Boston Globe, when Charles and Addie were married, they moved on to the Ayer farm, so they moved in with his parents. And the initial expectation was that they would take care of his parents as needed as they began to age. And then eventually they would inherit that farm, which I think is probably the norm, right? Yeah, I would sure imagine that would be a regular kind of setup. According to the Boston Globe, who interviewed Addie's sister Mary, she said that after about a year of living there, trouble arose because he, quote, did not use his father well, end quote. I don't know if they were arguing, if he was abusive, or if he was just disrespectful or wasn't living up to the agreement. But according to Mary, after about a year, they came to an agreement where his father would give him $1,000, and in return, he and his young family would just go, like, leave. Like, they, he basically was bought off. I think having a house with several generations living together can be absolutely perfect and amazingly beautiful, but it can also be really tough and cause a lot of problems and tensions. Yeah, 100%. Especially when there's a, when there isn't equity in what the children living there do. I just mean that when trouble arises in families, it's often because, you know, there's too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. It's interesting because Charles's sister Mary and her husband would then take over the farm. But I did notice when I was doing the family tree to see what I could find on the families, um, I found the marriage certificate for his sister. And it says that her husband, George, was a hairdresser and she is a music teacher. And I just, that made me sad because I think those were their lives until her brother sort of refused to do any work. And then Mary and her husband had to sort of give up their dream jobs, careers, and that was it. And that's what everybody would do. But I'm just pointing out ways in which his decisions impact others. Yeah. Yeah. 
Back to Charles. So he uses the $1,000 payoff from his father to purchase a small farm in Pembroke, and he bought that for $900. And according to Addie's sister Mary, she said at that time he was also working for a brickmaker, and he earned $40 a month for the work that he was doing for the brickmaker. It seems like he's incredibly artistic and really, really good at picking up anything artistic. This would have been around 1894, 1895, because I know from things I read at the time that they only had one baby, and that would have been their firstborn, Flossie. But again, the phrase comes up that he didn't do well by his employer, and he was fired. So, what do you think he didn't do well by his father, or he didn't do well by his employer means? Probably that he was too... that he didn't like to take any orders or quote-unquote orders you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he's not a good subordinate also now that you keep saying that he's very artistic sometimes people who are very creative very artistic and don't get a chance to live by making i don't know art music writing whatever it is that they are really really good at and that's their passion it kind of blocks them from manual labor yeah that's possible in a way you know what Mm -hmm. i mean I can totally understand that. Yep. Not knowing, it's it's more a subconscious thing, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I think we can come up with, well, we'll talk more about his reasons for not working in a little bit. Okay, so he sold the farm for $750 after he was fired from the brickmaker, and he got a job as a conductor driving the Concord Street Railway. I found a picture of the Concord Street Rail from around that time. It's cool. It's like a nice little, like a streetcar. He earned $2 a day driving the car, but he was apparently not great at it, and this time he was fired for what was described as his, quote, poor service. Then I was like, what does that mean? Is he always late? Is he rude? Is he rude and late? Did he drive too fast? Does he brake too hard? I don't know. I want more. I just know it was poor service. I'm also baffled that he, first of all, that he felt the need to sell the farm that he bought for 900, and then he sold it with for less than what he bought it. So what does it mean? Was he desperate to sell it? Was he just not good at selling the property, or was the property already run down after the time they had lived there? I think based on what I've read, I think what he's done is he buys the farm, which also has the livestock. And then he uses or sells all of the livestock. And once there's no more, like, stock, and once he can't pay his rent Mm -hmm. or his debt anymore, he sells it. He also seems to have a lot of problems with other people. Mm -hmm. And I think you agree most of the time if someone keeps having trouble with people over and over and over again. It's kind of people who say, I don't know, I'm always... It's always me, and and everybody's always so mean to me. People always pick on me. Yeah, yeah. And I always tend to see that it's mostly the problem is usually the person themselves. Yeah. Sometimes you're the asshole. And that's, that's true for all of us, you know. So then Addie's uncle, her mother Laura's brother, his name is Edward Glidden, He offered that they could rent out his farm in Pembroke for $75 a year. And that included the livestock, and that was a way for him to try to help them make a go of it. So they agree, and they move in, but Charles didn't pay the rent or work. And I suspect he might have sold off some livestock, and they were asked to leave. Which really sucks for her uncle. It's a terrible thing to love someone and want to help them, and then be burned. Do you know what I mean? In that that way. Yeah, totally. Charles is just the fucking worst. I think he must have been antisocial with maybe some delusions. I did read a lot of people who said that he felt work was beneath him. He felt work Mm. was for the common man. He didn't feel like he had to work. So, like, he understood, you know, he's, he's intelligent. He's very intelligent. He's loving to his wife and children. There are no reports that he ever abused them or even raised his voice to them. Although some people did say he was just too lazy to fight. (laughs) Although he refused to provide for them, he certainly neglected them. But there's no indication. In fact, people say that they know that he was not addicted to alcohol or drugs or any other substances at all. 
Um, he has serious, serious skills. He knows how to farm. He knows how to paint. And he's a very skilled harness maker. He's sociable, maybe a little bit too slick, but he just won't work. He will not work. Yeah, because he, as you said, he feels it's beneath he him. He thinks it's beneath Manual him. labor is beneath yeah. him. But sometimes you just have to suck it up, especially if you have a family with several children. I feel like for me, and this is person, this is my own personal thing, I feel like manual labor is so far above begging. Like the fact that he has no problem going to a neighbor's house and spending an hour trying to convince them to give him food, but he just won't work. Do an hour work instead, but start making a harness. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, so they moved back to Concord, which would be the city, you know, of, it's the state capital in 2021. It had a population of around 44,000. And in 1900, it had a population of 19,632. And so they're in Concord and they rent some rooms at Hills Block, which is on North Main Street in Concord. It's this huge old brick Victorian building. It's still there. I've got a picture of it. But they were kicked out for not paying their rent. Then they rented a house, and they also had boarders living with them. And I'm sure the idea was to have the boarders actually pay the rent. But that also did not work out. In 1900, Charles, Addie, and their two oldest children, Florence and Albert, were living in Chichester. There is no occupation listed for Charles. Usually when you see anything related to him, it says harness maker, and this time there's just nothing. And Addie's occupation is listed as a nurse. When Charles's father died in 1900 at the age of 88, uh, so I found his will, and he leaves Charles, his firstborn and only son, five dollars. Well, he already got money. It, it was already kind of in inheritance, right? That's right, when they definitely. paid him off, yeah. Yes, his father had paid him $1,000 to basically go away and not bother him anymore for money. His daughter, Charles's only sister, she inherits the family farm. He leaves his grandson, Charles's son, $10. He leaves his friend of his $50. And while it's definitely true that he already gave his, his son more than enough money, considering how he was let down by him, it's not that I think that children are responsible for choosing the career paths that their parents want for them, right? But this was a different time. I think it was a clear indication that they, they wanted to make sure he understood that he'd been generously bought off and wouldn't be getting any more money, yeah. you know? And I think Charles was still very, very angry that he didn't get more from the farm when his father died. So he refused to work and she was taking care of... Typical running the house, raising the children, and on top of that, also working as a nurse. But I assume that she wasn't earning a lot. Yeah. I mean, they get, they're getting kicked out for not paying their rent. How do they feed themselves? So this is one of the reasons, another reason that I think Charles was just a sociopath, because he refused to work, but he really spent a lot of time begging for charity from one family member or another on his side or his wife's side or neighbors. And he really didn't like to take no for an answer. I remember one quote I read, I think it was in one of the pieces from the Boston Globe, said something like, nobody thought that he was dishonest in that he would steal your chicken from you, but everyone felt he was dishonest in that he might try to talk you out of taking your chicken and giving it to him. You know, this kind of thing. Like he wouldn't take yeah. no for an answer. His uncle-in-law, Addie's uncle, said once that his wife was there and he had already said, I think this is the uncle that like rented them the place for a while who they totally screwed over and they had to ask him to leave. So I think that same uncle uh, had said to his wife, you know, if they come around here, just, just tell them you can't, just say no, just, just, just no, you know, unless it's the actual children, you know, but if it's Charles, just say no. So Charles came by and asked for food and money, and she said no. And when he pressed her, she was like, my husband doesn't want me giving you anything else. And then he says, well, if you just go and take it from his stores, he'll never know. Clearly shows. He, do you know what I mean? Like, he's cajoling. He understands right from wrong. 
This leaves family members often giving him food that he'd beg for the kids, but how no, who knows, you know, how much food made it to the actual wife and kids. We know that despite Addie making the children's clothing from, like, salvaged scraps and leftovers and hand-me-downs from family and friends and items donated from local charities, the children only went to school when the weather was nice because they didn't have sturdy enough shoes to walk to school if there was snow or rain or a lot of mud on the ground. And this is New Hampshire, where there is often snow or rain or mud on the ground. Hmm. Yeah. And then Addie's father, Isaac Newton Lakeman, great name, died on December 10th, 1902. It was not long after his 72nd birthday. His death certificate lists his cause of death as paralysis lasting three days. So I'm guessing he had a stroke and then hopefully had his loved ones near him when he passed. He did not have a will, and so things got complicated. And this is my chance to remind everyone out there that you should have a will. If you have children or pets or a home or a partner you share anything with, get a will. It makes things so much harder on people grieving when you don't have one, you know? So there's no will. And it seems Addie, Charles, and their five kids move in with her mother on the family farm in Pembroke. Addie's mother, Laura Lakeman, she was made executrix of her husband's estate. And through all of this sort of tumult and financial insecurity and job insecurity and just what had to have been really, really difficult times, they welcomed their fifth child. And so to review, the heir children were uh, their firstborn daughter, Florence, who they called Flossie. She was born in Epsom in April of 1894. Then their son, Albert, arrived in July 1896. He was born in Concord. Bernice was born in June of 1900 in Chichester. Andrew was born in 1901 in Epsom. And Laura Susan, who was named after each grandma, she was born on July 4th, 1905 at the Lakeman Farm in Pembroke. So these are the five living children of Addie and Charles. On Laura's birth certificate, it says she's the seventh child, so they have lost two children that I couldn't find information on. I think between Albert and Bernice and between Bernice and Andrew, based on timing, but that would be I, you know, I was going to say that would be really sadly common at that time, but that's not uncommon today. So as I said, the last move they made, the family moved in with Addie's recently widowed mother. And at that time, Charles purchased a harness shop in Suncook and in theory would have been making and selling harnesses while the family lived on the Lakeman farm. And according to the Portsmouth Herald, Charles was a really talented harness maker. Are we talking about harnesses for horses? Yes. Yes. So I actually found a great article about harness making in NewHampshire.gov on NewHampshire.gov, their website. And they say that, quote, a well-made harness is essential for working with a draft horse. A harness consists of a network of leather straps, buckles, and loops, and lines fitted to the horse and attached to what needs to be pulled whether it be a cart, wagon, a load of logs, a plow, or other heavy equipment. In the 1800s, the harness maker was the auto mechanic of his day. Many New Hampshire towns had several harness makers, and they were kept busy making and repairing harnesses. It's really very interesting. It says, a single draft horse harness may have as many as 36 pieces, not including the collar, and takes weeks to make. Three or four types of leather, each type suited to the needs of a particular part of the harness are used. End quote. It's fascinating. It really is so interesting. It's very clear that he was very, very skilled and really should have been in a position to be a very good income earner, you know, if only he would work. So, yeah, that, so that article in the Portsmouth Herald talks about him, and they say that, quote, he was an excellent workman, both at harness making and at painting, but was not industrious. He was regarded by his neighbors as shiftless, but not vicious. He was not on the most intimate terms with the brothers and sisters of his wife, it is stated, because of his failure to make more earnest effort for their support. He was a man of good health, was never a drinking man or addicted to other bad habits. End quote. 
It also says his neighbors thought he was a little bit odd. Some of his acquaintances regarded him as, you know, kind of weird, but not not anybody that anybody worried about. You know what I mean? Yeah, no red flags. Yeah, no red flags, apart from the refusal to work. And I think it's really important. People always make the point of saying, like, he didn't work as best he could. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he just did nothing. So Charles, Addie, and their five children move in with her recently widowed mother. And they're there for more than a year, and they have the land and the livestock. Plus, Charles has his harness shop. But is he working? No. But he was so good at it. I know. What a waste. (laughs) Such a waste. Such a waste. Because obviously, he must have enjoyed it at some point, right? Like, to have gotten far enough to be a harness maker, you have to learn... Yeah. This is what I can't figure out. You know, how do you go through all the steps that are necessary to become a harness maker and then at no point in that decide this isn't what you want to do? So he wasn't prepared to work, but he was trying to get his mother-in-law to believe that she should buy the farm, which was in probate, and then just give it to him. And Laura was like... Uh, no. She's like, I have six other children. None of them had asked for the farm, and there was no way that she could do that. It just wouldn't be fair. Also, I don't think she had the money to pay for the farm, probably because he was slowly selling everything. So he's furious, and he said out loud repeatedly in front of his brothers and sisters-in-law that if he didn't get the Lakeman farm, he would burn it to the ground. But again wasn't a violent person. I mean, he never really argued with anyone. So no one took much notice of his complaints, right? He was sort of a dramatic beggar and people just, I think, chalked it up to that. Yeah, but here we have the red flags, right? Well, there's the first big one, for sure. For sure. In the meantime, he lost the shop in Suncook, probably because he was not making nor selling harnesses and didn't pay the rent. And remember, he and his wife and five children are living rent-free with his mother-in-law. It seems like the seven adult children in the family were worried about the estate not being settled. They were also worried that somehow their shifty, shifty fucking brother-in-law would scam their mother into giving him the farm. Which, of course, meant he'd just lose it again. It's not like they were like, oh no, he might get the farm and work it and care for his family, right? That's what everybody wanted to have happen. I mean, he already had a farm. Twice. Exactly. Several. Several. And Laura was mentally all there and physically fit, but from what Mary said, it seems like they were just worried that he'd somehow wear her down. You know what I mean? Mm. And he'd been getting more and more insistent that she give him the farm. In November of 1905, they decide that the farm is going up to auction because of the estate not being settled, right? And so the winning bidder at the auction is Laura's oldest son and Addie's oldest brother, Lafayette. And he is not going to be falling for any of Charles's begging and cajoling and threats, but he's also not an uncaring brother and uncle. So he tells his sister and brother-in-law that they can live there with his mother, rent-free, so long as they paid taxes, keep up with the repairs, you know, don't let it get run down, and provide a home for their widowed mother, mother-in-law. I'm not really sure how tax rates compare, but locally in New England, in my area right now, I would say our annual property taxes are probably equivalent to like, and I live in a very high tax rate area, they call it Taxachusetts. I would say that for what you would spend on a month's rent, like if we decided to rent our house, it would be two or two or three months rent uh, would be in our annual property taxes. So that would be the same. Do you know what I mean? Like that's an equivalent Mm, sum. So it's a very, very generous offer considering Charles, you know, has never made any attempt to support anyone. It's extremely generous. But yeah, you know, Charles really should have inherited his father's farm years ago, but he squandered every opportunity he had to be a prosperous member of the community, you know, and a man who would support his family as best he could. But still, this arrangement, really, it just, it wasn't enough for Charles. So 
He then said he wanted a share of the proceeds of the sale of the house because he thought that his wife was des- was like deserving of a share of the property because she was one of the children and therefore one of the rightful heirs. The other six siblings, none of them felt this way. You know what I mean? They were all, he was the only one. And he really put his wife in a shitty position. Plus, I mean, the, the, the farm wasn't even part of the inheritance. He bid on it during an auction. It was his farm. Exactly. And he let them live rent-free there. It's Exactly. Yeah, and never mind the fact, like you said, her brother buying the farm prevented a stranger from buying the farm. And then Charles and Addie would have had no home for their family. Never mind, like I was saying, like none of the other siblings wanted in on it. They were like, no, that's the money our mother has to live on for the rest of her life. Then, then... He asks his mother-in-law, he's like, okay, well, how about if you just give me $100 to see us through the winter then? You know, he's one of these people that just will not take no for an answer. And then that's the kind of person you don't even want to help, just because they're so... Because he thinks he deserves it. Yes. He doesn't see it as help. He thinks... Yes. If he goes somewhere begging for food, it's not begging to him. He's asking for what he deserves. 100%. For being such a great person. 100%. 100%. Yeah. The worst. The worst. So she says no to this, obviously, and it makes things contentious. So in January 1906, Charles and Addie are still living on the Lakeman farm with her mother, Laura, and their five kids. At that time, the kids were 12-year-old Flossie, Albert's nine, Andrew is five, Bernice is three, And the baby, Laura Susan, who's named after each of the grandmothers, she's about a year and a half. She was that 4th of July baby. So at this point, Charles has really gotten himself into something of a state over his mother-in-law's refusal to share the funds from the purchase of the farm. Lots of bickering. Laura had been talking about moving out of the house. She was so uncomfortable with her son-in-law kind of hounding her relentlessly for money. It must have been so uncomfortable to live there. Yeah. I hate it when you live somewhere and you don't feel safe and secure in your home. Like, you don't even want to leave your room, probably. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. One morning, in the second week of January, a neighbor drove his horses past the Lakeman farm. And he was looking for the usual cheery sight of the children's faces at the window. Because they wouldn't be in school if he was out in his sleigh in the snow, right? They didn't have the shoes to walk to school. So they'd always hear that bells on his horse sleigh. And as he drove past the farm, he'd see their little faces all pressed to the windows while they'd wave as he passed by. But that morning, the curtains were still drawn and the children were nowhere to be seen. Laura Lakeman's brother, Addie's uncle, Edward Glidden, he lived closest to the Lakeman farm, just a few hundred yards away. And he recalled seeing lights on in the house on Tuesday evening, January 16th. He said then that on Wednesday morning, the curtains were drawn and the place was really unusually quiet. And around 9 a.m. on the 17th, he also saw the horse and sleigh leave the farm with one person on board, who he thought was Charles, but he wasn't completely certain. He noticed a little bit of smoke coming from the farm while he was on his way to run an errand, but... He didn't really think much of it and assumed they were just burning some brush. It was Charles in the sleigh, and when he left the farm, he drove the sleigh to Chichester, which is about six miles or ten kilometers away, where his sister and her family lived in the farmhouse he grew up in. You remember, the one he was paid $1,000 to Mm -hmm. fuck off from. On his way, he stopped at the home of a man that he owed some money to. He was there to sell the man his horse and sleigh, And he was acting kind of weird, and he had a bottle full of some kind of liquid with him. And he was saying to his friend, like, look at this, isn't it interesting? And I guess the guy was like, I don't know, it depends on what's in it. And then Charles threw it and smashed against a rock wall. And the friend was like, okay. So he sold his horse and sleigh for $25. I don't think he actually pocketed most of that. I think he owed the guy like $25, Mm. do you know what I mean? And he walked to his sister's and arrived just in time to sit down and have a nice supper with her family. The horse and sleigh weren't the only things he'd sold lately. He'd sold a lot. He had sold all but a few of the hens the family needed to survive. He claimed that the last cow went missing, but everyone knew he'd sold it. He'd even sold the family dog for a dollar, which, to be fair, that was probably great for the dog, but what the fuck? Like, 
Who sells their dog? We just had a case where a 10-year-old girl sold a family dog for, I think it was 300 euros or something like that, behind her parents' back. I think it was actually more her mom's <laughs> dog. And she just sold it. She didn't like the oh dog. Oh, my God. <gasps> mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's one to watch. <laughs> mm -hmm, definitely. <laughs> this is the thing about Charles. I mean, we've been over it before, but he's not suffering any physical or mental health issues, no problems with addiction, above average intelligence. He knows trades. We know he's not agoraphobic because he'll go to neighbors' houses to beg. There's no indication of mood swings. I don't know. I think if he was refusing to work as a political or ideological statement, that would have been said, right, at some point. But I found nothing of any of that. So he arrives at his sister's house... He shows up often for a meal or money or a loan, whatever. And he does, again, show up, has their meal. And when he's asked how he's doing, oh, I forgot to write the exact quote, but it doesn't really matter. He basically says something along the lines of like, it's all over for me now. Like, it's all done for me now. And they're like, okay, but he can be kind of, you know, shifty. So nobody really knows and nobody wants to know. And dramatic probably, right? Yeah. Mm. I think he's the kind of person that you don't ask for more information from. Nowadays, he would be one of these people who would make this kind of very obscure Facebook posts, right? Yes. And, and, and you know what? People who knew them would be like, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. So, meanwhile, six miles, or as I said, a little under 10, 10K away, back at the Lakeman Farm... Shortly after the sleigh left the farm, as I said, smoke was seen, and people weren't concerned about that, but within 15 minutes, it was clear that this was a serious problem, and the entire house was ablaze. The fire spread to an L, it's written E-L-L, -L, which was like another building that, could, that like attached the house to the shed and then the barn. So it's like a connecting building with more rooms in it. Are there uh, a lot of Germans in that area? Probably. I'm just because L, L is your forearm, the, oh, the right. thing that connects your elbow and your hand. Huh. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. So that could come from that. I don't know. It definitely could. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the fire spread, which, you know, pretty quickly engulfed the L and the shed and the barn. The farm wasn't an area without too many neighbors. And the neighbors they did have who were home on a, in the middle of the week on a workday were mostly women, children, and folks who were too old or too sick for work. The able-bodied primarily would have been, you know, off working in factories and fields, except for Charles, uh, who was getting a free meal at his sister's. But this didn't stop the neighbors who were there to rush to the site, despite age and disability But when they arrived in an attempt to help, they realized that there was no way that anyone could be rescued. It was far too dangerous, and anybody would have been long since passed. All they could really do is keep people away as the building kind of burned and collapsed. Meanwhile, this is all kind of happening at the same time, Henry Lakeman, Addie's little brother, uh, Laura's youngest son, he lived and worked in Concord. He was a blacksmith member. And he worked for the Abbott Downing Company, who made fancy coaches. They might actually have been regular coaches, because all coaches seem fancy to me, right? Like, you're like, ooh, a coach. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. So he's at work at the Coachmakers. And although the Concord Farm he had grown up on was five miles away, it was, as I said before, on a hill. So he could see the hill where his family farm was uh, with no difficulty. And when he saw the smoke... He knew his family farm was on fire, which has to be an awful feeling, and he rushes to the scene. When he arrives, the house is still burning, and the main house with the cellar under it has collapsed into the cellar where it's still burning, too hot to examine. So there was like the cellar, and then the first or ground floor, and then the second or what some people would call the third floor, and that all fell into the basement, if that makes sense, because wooden house. Mm -hmm. So he was able to explore a little bit in that area that is called the L, that addition connecting the house to the barn. This is the area where his mother's room was located. And the reason that he could explore it was because there was no basement under this part of 
the, the structures. And this is where he finds the first two bodies, one large and one small, and they're burned beyond recognition. He believes it's his mother, along with one of her grandchildren, one of his nieces or nephews. And he thought this because her body was found in the part of the house where her bedroom was. He couldn't be sure because the bodies were severely damaged in the fire. Later in the afternoon, while cautiously sifting through still smoldering wreckage in the basement of the home, more bodies were found and taken to the undertaker in Suncook. One report said that only 40 pounds of remains were found of the two grown women and five children. They were just reduced to mostly ash, especially the children. 40 pounds. That's less than the allowance for like one piece of luggage on your average flight. That's so little. Horribly sad. Yeah. Really, really sad. So Henry goes to the nearest phone and he notifies authorities and they call in the medical examiner and the other necessary folks. A man named William Fowler. He actually had seen Charles Ayer previously when he was on his way to toward his sister's house. And somebody came running up to him saying, hey, we're looking for Charlie Ayer. Do you know where he is? Do you know where he is? And Fowler said, yeah, I think I know where he is. I'll, I'll go find him. And so he set off, took him way longer than expected. But he's on his way to inform Charlie of this absolutely devastating loss that his farm had burned and at least one body had been seen. So he arrives at the Bailey Farm, and to quote Edwin Park's article in the Boston Globe from the 18th of January, 1906, quote, Fowler got out of his sleigh and walked toward Ayer, who he noticed seemed to be very much excited. Fowler walked up to within 10 feet of him and sang out, Charlie, your house is burned down, and I think some of the folks were burned too. Mr. Fowler said today that Eyre didn't say a word or utter a sound of any sort. He just stared at Fowler hard for a fraction of a minute. And then, as Fowler, who had stopped when he began speaking, started toward him again, Eyre stuck his right hand in his trouser pocket, pulled out a twenty-two caliber single-barrel pistol, and raising it quickly, placed the muzzle to his right temple and pulled the trigger. That's very anticlimactic. I know. I know. And kind of, I mean, I'm sure you think the same that he did it, but uh, it's also, it also makes him kind of the super, super suspect here. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So, because initially everyone thought it was a terrible tragedy and that he killed himself in despair because his family had all died. Right? That was like the initial, like, oh, this is just the saddest thing. But then, meanwhile, back at the Lakeman farm, this is fucked up. Okay. A Boston Globe reporter arrives on the scene. And because it's 1906, he reaches down and lifts up the now-cooled skull believed to belong to Laura Lakeman, the one that's found, like, not in the main house, but in the L. And as he's holding the skull... He feels something rattle, and so he sort of tilts it, and out falls some metal. And what this proved was that Laura had been shot in the head. During the heat of the fire, the bullet in her skull melted, and her brain evaporated, and as the scene cooled, so did the metal in her skull, right? Because it's January, there's snow on the ground, it's cold outside. So... The metal cooled, and they had this small, sort of thin skull-shaped bit of metal. They don't think that anyone else was shot. The neighbors were far enough away that a single gunshot, I don't think, would be amiss or startle anyone, right? Because you might just fire one to scare away coyotes or bear. You know what I mean? But multiple gunshots would have been heard and were not. Also, because the bodies were found in different parts of the basement, they corresponded with where they would have been when they were sleeping. There was a child with each of the women, I think, and small amounts of the remains of the children would have also been found. So the thought was that he maybe had used an axe or another blunt instrument and killed them all in their sleep, or he had perhaps poisoned them. So the friend that he sold the horse to, uh, to pay his debts, you remember that story about the bottle? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, so after this all went down, he was like, oh, shit. 
So he went out to where Charles had like smashed the bottle against his his stone wall because he was hoping to find a fragment of it and like smell the inside to see if it was poison. And unfortunately, it had snowed again. And so whatever he said at the time, there was only a very small amount of liquid in it when he threw it into the wall. And because he wasn't drunk or acting drunk and was known not to drink, the acquaintance there had wondered if he had intended that last dose of the poison for himself, maybe, and then lost his nerve, possibly. It was one theory. Ultimately, they didn't really put that much effort into determining what the cause of death was. It just says murdered on their death certificates, and we actually don't know when they were killed. So the death certificates literally say January 15th, 16th, or 17th. We're not really sure. It's believed by most, I think, that everyone was probably killed with an axe or some other blunt force trauma that would be quiet while they were sleeping. But there wasn't enough skull left to... No. To see, yeah, if there were, they were damaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, especially the children. Like, I think the smallest, the smallest children, there was, there was just not, there just was, it was a really long hot fire. They couldn't tell. And I think extreme heat also damp, like, makes things brittle. So it was difficult to understand. The only one that they could really for sure sort of tell was who they thought was Mrs. Lakeman with the, yeah, Laura, because there was a hole in her skull. And she was the most identifiable based on what little, little, little remained of her. Do you know what I mean? Like, everyone else was, there was nothing. Oh, also some people think that, so they think maybe he just intended to kill his mother-in-law, right? And maybe make it look like someone else broke in and did it or something. Do you know what I mean? And so he shot her thinking that then they would inherit or something else would happen. But then Addie got involved and then trying to defend her, you know, she's murdered. And then without his wife, who's going to care for the kids? So he kills the kids. But in the end, we have no way of knowing exactly what went down because the fire he lit really did cover all of the evidence perfectly. And because all of the farm animals and the dog escaped because he had sold them, made some wonder how long he'd been planning this. I don't know. I don't think he would be the kind of person who... Like, made arrangements to get the dog out, but not the kids. Yeah, yeah I no. Think so I think either. he just uh, sold the farm animals because he wanted the money. I don't think he was like, I oh, agree. I'm gonna sell the animals because I don't want them to die in a fire. Yeah, I don't think he I would totally care. agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So Henry's still in... This is all happening kind of simultaneously and quickly. And Henry's in town waiting to hear back and a call comes in from Charles Langmaid. He is a Chichester selectman. And he says, we've located Charles. He had not died in the fire. He arrived alone here in town, sold his horse, and then shot himself upon notification of the fire. So... But there had been a growing sense of unease in the area. Um, A lot of people did have phones and word had spread like wildfire that the family had been murdered. Once news came in about Charles having shot himself, everyone was like, oh, all right, well, this is awful. But like the mob sort of simmered down again. And I cannot underemphasize how all of the newspapers refer to Charles as the laziest man who ever lived, the laziest man in New Hampshire. I think Addie's uncle was like, well, they might have fought, but honestly, he was too lazy to fight. Everyone hated this man. I don't know. We don't know. We don't really know the whole story. And, you know, his not working, maybe that wasn't his fault. We, we have no way of knowing. But deciding to murder his family, that was his fault. And so he's not getting any sympathy for that. Charles's funeral was held on the 19th of January at his sister's house, the home where he'd grown up in and where he died. The funeral for the family was on the 20th of January, 1906. Addie's brothers, Lafayette, Albert, George, and Henry Lakeman, they were the pallbearers for their mother, sister, and five nieces and nephews who were all buried together in two caskets. Yeah, just just such a sad tragedy. And then, ten years later, after Laura died, in, in ten years after Laura and Addie died, in 1916, her sister Vasta died, age 40, of surgical shock after a hysterectomy. 
Because I was like, oh man, I was 40 when I had my hysterectomy. Mm. So that's devastating. She had two young children as well. Her ex-husband, the maybe jeweler or watchmaker, he died only two years later of general paralysis. So incredibly hard time for their children. I did find out that one of the daughters uh, at 17 was working as a servant in the home of a physician. It looks like everybody went on okay and had a good life. I think the siblings took care of her. Anyway, that's not quite the end of the story. It seems that on the land where the Lakeman Farm once stood, there's now a house built in the 1950s. And over the years, that house has had what one would call your typical paranormal activity, mostly footsteps. And the current people living in that home, they've been there for quite a while. And the kids in that family, I guess, were creeped up enough by the footprints that one of them, when he was like seven or eight, decided he'd rather sleep on the living room couch than sleep in his bedroom because of all the footsteps that they would hear that would just terrify them. Fast forward to this April 2019 article in the Concord Monitor by Ray Duckler, and he writes that the current inhabitants of the home who had reported this activity didn't learn that the Eyre family had been murdered on that land in 1906 until a few months ago, and then the owner has since decided to tell her now grown children, they still live in the house, but you know, they're 18, 19, mm-hmm. that maybe those footsteps they used to tell her about all the time that she said were all in their head, maybe they weren't imagined after all. Maybe. Would make sense. And that is the awful story of the air family tragedy. Very sad. Very sad. I wonder, did they talk about his appearance? Like, did he take a lot of pride in his clothing, in his appearance? In... He did, and we have pictures of them. We have we have a picture of them on their way. That makes day. total sense, uh, the way I picture him and the way his character is described. Yeah, very fancy mustache. Thank you, that was really, really sad, really upsetting. It is, isn't it? You have something good? Uh, yeah, <laughs> water. <laughs> you already know it. Um, I started... <laughs> A week ago, I decided I need to drink more water. I'm, In general, I drink way too little during the day. And then I often drink Coke Zero. Now it's, you know, spring again and I'm uh, outside a lot. And I started running again and starting eating healthy again. And so I decided I have to drink more water. So I bought this ridiculously ginormous water bottle. I sent Anya a picture. It's like <laughs> over three liters. I don't know how many gallons that is, but it's huge. It's huge. And uh, I manage to drink my water now every day. I have to pee a lot, but I'm drinking water and that's my something good. That's really good, though. It reminds me of shrinking. Have you seen shrinking yet? Uh, yeah. Honestly, that's what gave me the idea of a water bottle. I was like, that's that's not such a bad idea. No, it really isn't. <laughs> It really is not the worst idea. How about you? (laughs) I have had a couple of very, very nice visits lately with friends. I'm hoping that the, um, I feel like I'm finally kind of just starting to lift out of this migraine fog and fingers crossed things are starting to move in the right direction there. I hope so. It would be really good news. It would be, yeah. All right, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please go to your podcast app and check if you can leave us a rating and or review. We really love to read them and we also really need them because they are good for the algorithm and help people decide if they want to listen (laughs) to us or not. And you can leave reviews in wild places now, like IMDb and Audible. Yeah, true. Like there's all kinds of places where you can leave a review for for Fresh Hell Podcast. So. Also, Annie said at the last time, please go spread the word, spread the, the message in different Facebook groups or wherever. I see it a lot. People ask in Facebook groups, well, I'm, I'm through with all my true crime podcasts that I listen to. Do you have any recommendations? And we never get recommended, except for Annie no. and me. We're the only people who recommend us. So I know, please. and it makes me feel so embarrassed. I'm still going to do it, but <laughs> come on, y'all. If you need any information, how to contact us, where our merch is that we're going to move soon when my laptop I'm only comes back. accepting mail by carrier pigeon. <laughs> uh, about our Patreon, about our 
P.O. Box, about our Facebook group. All the links, all the information is on our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com. We're gonna have the, the Patreon murder tier get together tonight. We're gonna be chatting a little bit. So check that out. That's our John Bonet discussion, right? Yes, we decided, you know, we, we always said we're not gonna do episodes about true crime or anything that would be our normal episodes. So we thought it might be fun if we would just, you know, casually discuss cases that we would never cover yeah. with some of the listeners. So we will be discussing John Binet today. That's right. A little bit. Not not in depth, but I really I can't wait to hear what everybody thinks about that case. I am also super interested to hear what everyone thinks about that case. And that's it. Please tell your pets we said hi, we love them, we miss them, hug them, cuddle them, give them treats, take them to the vet, let them sleep in your bed or not. Depends on the pet you have. Be kind to your pets. Be kind sometimes to strangers if they're kind of, you know, stressed out and, I don't know, trust your gut feeling, but be safe. And the hardest part of it all, be kind to yourself. And that's it. That's right. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.